Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's been more than a year since Chris Watts pleaded guilty to the horrific murder of his pregnant wife, Shannon, their unborn child, and their two small daughters. No one was more shocked than Shannon's parents at how quickly the man they had always seen as a handsome and loving husband, a hero dad, morphed into a monster. It was as if he transformed overnight before their very eyes, revealing a hidden secret man, a man capable of annihilating his entire family in cold blood. Now, instead of birthday parties, baby showers, and ballet, Chris Watts spent his days in almost total isolation. He is alone for 23 out of 24 hours each day, locked in a concrete cell inside a prison that used to serve as a psychiatric hospital. Those concrete walls have seen other men, evil men just like him. This facility has housed some of America's most notorious and sick criminals, like serial killer Ed Gaines and Chris Coleman, a man who killed his wife and two sons. Chris is now officially just like those men, one of America's most sadistic, violent, and notorious killers. Yet somehow, Chris still has people who are seeing the best in him. Who are the mystery women who claim they are visiting him behind bars, and why do they believe that he is a good man? One says she believes he was taken over by an evil spirit. The other says his mistress was the one calling the shots, and she is the one to blame. Will Chris be the latest handsome killer like Scott Peterson and the Menendez brothers before him to find love behind bars? But despite visits from female supporters, sources who remain close to the killer dad say Chris has been living in a hell, a hell of his own making. He has been revealing his delusional mindset as well as disturbing new details about his crimes. He's been telling this to an author who became his prison pen pal. He says he still thinks of himself as a husband and a father and has told her his children visit him, speak to him, and dance for him from beyond the grave. He's also revealed disturbing new details about this like the fact that he planned this murder. It was premeditated, and that he tried to kill his children at home, but failed. Failed before driving them to the oil site where he later took their lives. All this and more is coming up on the final episode of The Devil Beside Me, the Chris Watts story. Husband, father, killer. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place 
price for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Chris Watts was sentenced to multiple life sentences last November. His fate was sealed. He will spend the rest of his time on this earth in prison. He will never take another free breath. He's serving his sentence at Dodge Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison in Wisconsin. It was only after he was locked away that he gave his real confession to Colorado and federal investigators, revealing the horrifying details about how he brutally strangled his wife, Shannon, followed by his two little girls, one of whom begged him, Daddy, don't do to me what you did to Cece. But despite admitting he murdered his children, now, behind bars, Chris is making bizarre statements. In a letter to his mother, Cindy, Chris writes, I'm still a dad. I'm still a son, no matter what. Now I can add servant of God to that mix. He has shown me peace, peace, love, and forgiveness. And that's how I live every day. So I guess we have another jailhouse Christian on our hands didn't take him long to get religion. In other letters, he expresses how sad he is that he can't be with the family to celebrate holidays and birthdays. Now, far be it from me to say for sure if a man has found God or not, but it sure is convenient to say you're good with God when you're stuck in a six-by-eight-foot cell. How else can you get sympathy? How else can you get people to find compassion towards you once you've been convicted of killing your own children? The best way I know, the tried and proven way, is to say you've confessed your sins to God, Christ died for your sins, and you've called that marker in. You've found God. You're a new man. You're born again. That vicious, evil killer is gone. You're washed in the blood. How can anybody judge this born-again Christian? And sympathy is something that this guy gets, believe it or not, by way of visitors and letters by the bundle. You know, there's something psychological where people find that they feel as though they stand on the moral high ground when they forgive those that have done the most heinous things. It's almost as though they have risen to the pinnacle when they can forgive the most unforgivable. It edifies them because only those that walk close to God, only those that have truly found the path could possibly forgive the unforgivable. Is that what motivates people to look past these heinous crimes, these vicious and evil murders? In the sea of people that openly despise Chris for what he has done, he has also gained a legion of loyal followers. We know at least two women who are claiming they visit him in prison. Neither of their real names are being revealed to the public. They're being called Anna and Kate in order to protect their identities, and I suspect their identities need protecting. Because unlike the forgiveness they seem to afford to Chris, I suspect judgment would be their just dessert. Both women say they wrote to Chris, and their letters soon turned to visits. 
Both women say they believe he is truly remorseful for what he has done. Is it really that simple? You kill your wife, your unborn child, your two precious daughters, but you're sorry. You really feel bad about it. So, second chance? In a documentary on Hulu, Anna revealed that she has visited Chris multiple times. She reports that Chris has said that he feels like there was an evil spirit that took him over, that he felt like somebody, not him, was physically taking his hand and making him strangle his wife and children. Well, isn't that handy? It wasn't me. I was possessed. The devil made me do it. Remember, at first he was saying, I did it because I was enraged that she had killed my children. Now he says, well, no, I did it, but it wasn't really me. It was the devil working through me. Kate has also been to see him, and she says that she's spoken to Chris seven or eight times since he's been incarcerated, and that when Chris talks to her about Shannon, he talks about how great she was and how much he loved her, how much he adored her and the children. You know, when you're dealing with a narcissist, it goes without saying that they feed off of attention. They need it. It's their currency. So when Chris is talking to these women, chances are he's really trying to pull at their heartstrings because he wants their approval. He wants their acceptance. And he's trying to read what it is he needs to say, what it is he needs to do to keep them coming back. Anyone could figure out that he's got to be sorry. He's got to come up with some explanation other than, look, I'm just a jerk. I'm a selfish jerk that wanted to be with somebody else. And rather than go through divorce and pay all kinds of money and have to do child support and continue to take care of and be with my children, I will just wipe them off the face of the earth. That wouldn't be very seductive. So he has to come up with some other story. Now, let's keep in mind that these are only two examples of women who admit to visiting and corresponding with Chris. Some would say he's a good-looking man, and some would say he certainly thinks he is. When the FBI came to speak to him, he told them that he had seen women smiling at him and noticing him long before he ever cheated on his wife. There are more women out there who find Chris attractive, who think he could be their knight in shining armor, and they write to him. According to the district attorney who prosecuted Chris, love letters have been rolling in for him ever since he was first jailed and awaiting his first court date. Here are just some of the sentiments women have written to a man they are fully aware is guilty of familiacide. From a 39-year-old woman in Colorado, she wrote, and I quote, I want to get to know you so bad it's not even funny. Literally, you are on my mind almost every single day since you were in the news. In another letter, this woman wrote that she would be, quote, the happiest girl alive if he wrote her back, signing her letter with the hashtags, Team Chris, Chris is innocent, love him, and so cute. Another woman from Australia shared, you honestly have one of the kindest faces I've ever seen. I don't even know you, yet I don't want you to feel alone. If you can stomach one more, in this one, a love-struck woman named Tatiana pinned, I found myself thinking a lot about you. And with this letter, the woman included a photo of herself clad in a skimpy bikini. Other women shared similar emotions for this killer. 
killer they had never met, saying things like, I feel a deep connection to you. I hope to brighten your days. They draw hearts, flowers, and sign their letters with X's and O's like a girl in junior high might do when passing a note to a boy in class. So a man who has admitted to killing his entire family in cold blood and discarding their bodies in an oil field, who will now spend the remainder of his life in prison, has women lining up to be his next girlfriend, like he's some kind of matinee idol. So how is this possible? Well, in my 45 years of working in human nature and dealing with relationships, I've gained a lot of insight on men, women, and how they connect with one another. And I've talked about the signs of toxic love and the different types of men and women that should really stay away from each other. And I've also talked to women who are addicted to finding love behind bars. Now, you can look at other killers like Ted Bundy, the Menendez brothers, Charles Manson. There were women who were only too eager to wed these men who were locked away from society. So why? What would motivate that kind of person? Well, there are several things. One is the idea of getting famous. On Dr. Phil, I interviewed Lynn Hartman, a woman who was engaged to Stephen Avery, the man who claimed to be wrongly convicted of murder and was the subject of the documentary hit, Making a Murder. Even during my interview with her, she admitted to wanting to be part of his story. It was attractive to her, and Stephen managed to get involved with other women from behind bars as well. The couple ended their engagement soon after her interview with me. So there are some women who focus on how these men have become famous, so much so that they lose focus on the fact that they aren't famous, that they're actually infamous. As strange as it may sound, some of these women want to hitch themselves to this particular brand of fame. It's like they're attracted to the bad boy image. And some of these women believe they can see beyond the criminal behavior. They believe they are the criminal whisperers. These women believe that they are seeing goodness in these killers that other people can't perceive, which they believe makes them especially empathetic. When Scott Peterson was sent to prison for murdering his wife Lacey and their unborn child Connor, he received boatloads of marriage proposals in the mail. And think about the women who spoke out about visiting Chris. They believe when he says an evil force took over his body when he killed his family, that it wasn't really him, that there was an invasion of the body snatchers. They believe that at his core, he's still a good person. It wasn't him that did it. It was something that possessed him. He was actually a victim. Something took him over and took his family away from him. Poor Chris. And then there's the fantasy. Okay, so it might sound twisted to you and me, but there's a fantasy element involved here. The law is keeping you from truly being together. And this alone can heighten emotions. And in the minds of these women, it ups the romantic factor because of the taboo. You want what you can't have. If a guy is sitting in a prison cell, it makes sense that he would send a woman copious amounts of poems, letters, drawings, all professing his love. What the hell else is he doing in there? He's got plenty of time on his hands. The relationship depends on written communications and visits. These women can project a Romeo-type persona on a hardened criminal, especially if a man is serving a life sentence. There is no chance of that fantasy bubble ever being tested in the real world. 
Then there's the element of control. This concept ties into the idea of fantasy. If your man is behind bars, who's in control? You are in control. They are depending on you for love, you for communication, you for visits. You are in a power position. Studies have shown this can sometimes be enticing, particularly for a battered woman. Women who have suffered child abuse or women who are scared and or are distrustful of men when it comes to real-world relationships. Being in a relationship with a man behind bars is a way of protecting themselves. There's a literal barrier keeping the relationship from becoming too real, and therefore they're protected from being potentially threatened or hurt. Low self-esteem plays a role here. In some cases, these women might not feel they deserve better, so they go for these very specific and limited types of relationships because they don't think they can get what they want with a man who is actually free, who would have a choice, who could come and go, stay or leave. They need a captive audience. They need someone that is so desperate for female attention, so desperate for that visit, that they will wait. And they cannot leave because they cannot leave. And there's always this savior complex. It might be subconscious, but some of these women think they can rescue this man. He's lost his way. He's made mistakes. And they feel a sense of satisfaction by being able to be the caretaker of his soul, the caretaker of his happiness. They write to him. They lift him up. They talk to them on the phone or visit them. They send them money to use in prison. They feel like they're nurturing these men back to some semblance of sanity and health. And they don't have a lot of competition here because they're not in the free world where they can interact with a whole lot of other people. And then there's hybristophilia. Now, this is rare, but a true phenomenon where women are turned on by the idea that a man has committed a crime. So now we get a sense of what motivates some of these women tripping over themselves to date these guys. And if you roll all of this up into a ball, to me it boils down that these women feel safe. They don't have to perform in a fully functioning give-and-take relationship. They don't have to interact on a daily basis. They don't have to meet certain demands. They're in control. They can turn it on. They can turn it off. The expectations are very low. All I got to do is show up. They just don't feel adequate to deal with somebody that's on equal footing. And they love the attention-getting aspect of dealing with someone that's been in the news Someone that has a shock factor when they tell their friends, I'm involved with this murderer, with this family annihilator. I'm walking on the edge of danger. So now we get the sense of what motivates some of these women tripping over themselves to date these guys. And Chris will probably go on to receive letters like this for the rest of his life. But there's one woman Chris began corresponding with that was very different from the rest. Different because of things he divulged to her. Her name is Cheryl Lynn Cadle, and she is not a woman in her 20s or 30s sending sexy bathing suit photos. She is a 65-year-old grandmother living in Illinois. 
She usually writes articles for publications like Reader's Digest and her local newspaper. Now, out of the piles of mail he receives, one of the people he chose to respond to was Cheryl Lynn. Cheryl Lynn told him she just wanted to give him a chance to address any remaining unanswered questions about the case. They struck up a regular correspondence, just writing back and forth, old-fashioned snail mail. So what drove Cheryl Lynn to write to Chris? She says that as a mother and as a grandmother that she felt compelled to speak to him because she thought there had to be more to the story, that the pieces were still just not fitting together. Cheryl Lynn says she was surprised when Chris began answering her, and they became prison pen pals. It was only after her in-prison meeting with Chris that he gave her permission to use their letters in a book she wrote called Letters from Christopher, The Tragic Confessions of the Watts Family Murders. And the new story Chris told is enough to make your hair stand on end. In a letter Chris wrote to Cheryl Lynn last April, he strongly contradicts what he told investigators during their interview a year prior. During his initial police interrogation, he accused Shannon of killing their daughters, claiming she smothered them in a rage over his request for a divorce, and he killed her in retaliation. Then, when the FBI questioned him in prison, he changed the story again, this time saying he spontaneously strangled his wife after exploding in a rage and then was forced to kill his daughters after they witnessed the act. Two different stories, but the common theme in both was that this all happened unexpectedly and was due to a moment of rage and was unplanned. But there's a second theme that's buried within these two seemingly unrelated accounts, and that is that in both, Chris is sort of a hero. That's the narcissistic undertone. See, in the first, he was exacting revenge on behalf of his daughters. And in the second... He was such a prize, he was such a wonderful husband and man, that the thought of divorce pushed her over the edge. She just couldn't take the idea of life without him. And she flew into a rage and killed her children. Once again, he's the hero here. He's so great, he's so sought after, that even the idea of divorce threw her into a homicidal rage. She couldn't fathom losing him. Pray for him. You will find that theme is interwoven in everything he talks about. But now in these letters to Cheryl Lynn, he's telling yet a third story and claiming that the murder of his family was in fact premeditated. He says this regarding the night before the murders. August 12th, I finished putting the girls to bed. I walked away and said, that's the last time I'm going to be tucking my babies in. I knew what was going to happen the day before, and I did nothing to stop it. I was numb to the entire world. So here he is admitting that this was a plan, as if the thought of him killing his pregnant wife and children wasn't horrifying enough, He now puts it out there that he had been thinking about it. He knew he was going to do this. He says when he tucked them in, he knew he would never do that again. Why? Because he knew he was going to kill them. 
It wasn't because of what they saw. He planned to kill them before they saw anything. So how long had he been thinking about doing this? A month? A year? Since Shannon became pregnant with their third child, Nico? Well, he doesn't say, but it's not unlikely that when his wife and children were staying with his in-laws, it's when he might have started to make the move from fantasizing about killing his family to actually starting to put his demonic plan into motion. It makes you wonder, if this man was thinking about doing this for months before the murders, he also had the capacity and the time to decide not to do it. Instead, as he says, even at a children's party with his kids, while he was singing Happy Birthday, he knew in the back of his mind that he was going to end their lives. Whenever he talks to people now about what he did, he seems very tethered to this idea that he was, quote, out of control and numb. Most likely because in some small way it makes him seem slightly less evil. However, with this new admission, all that goes out the window. When he describes the murders, he continues to totally alter the accounts he's given previously. He has now revealed he tried to kill his daughters first and then killed his pregnant wife, Shannon. And he tried to commit all the murders inside his house. He says it was never his plan to take the girls alive to the oil site. Chris says he actually attempted to kill both daughters that morning while Shannon slept in the bedroom. He says he slipped into the rooms and took a pillow and smothered Bella first, then Cece. He then says he went back to bed with Shannon. They had their argument and he killed her. He horrifyingly details that he was actually angry to discover that he hadn't succeeded in murdering his girls, saying that he was, quote, so mad they were still alive. He wrote the children looked bruised and like they had been through trauma. If an evil force really took him over, like his new alleged prison girlfriends believe, you would think he would be relieved that when he went back into his children's room and discovered that his little girls weren't dead, he would be happy. Instead, he was livid. He had not checked their murder off his to-do list. Chris also changed his story about how he killed his wife. He now claims to have given Shannon the painkiller oxycodone before strangling her. He initially told the FBI investigators he didn't know why she didn't fight back while his hands were clasped around her neck, literally choking the life out of her. Now he says she couldn't fight back because she was incapacitated. He also said he had secretly given her the drug in the past, hoping it would make her miscarry. He said, I thought it would be easier to be with Nicole if Shannon wasn't pregnant. So now the story is not only that he strangled her, but he possibly drugged her before he did it. It's as cowardly as it is horrifying. Pregnant, emotional, and maybe even slipped painkillers. Then overtaken by her husband. In a chilling, neat handwriting, he explains in graphic, sickening detail 
what those final moments were truly like for Shannon. Here's what he said. Isn't it weird how I look back and what I remember so much is her face getting all black with streaks of mascara. All the weeks of me thinking about killing her and now I was faced with it. When she started to get drowsy, I somehow knew how to squeeze the juggler veins until it cut off the blood flow to her brain and she passed out. I knew if I took my hands off of her, she would still keep me from Nikki. They asked me why she couldn't fight back. It's because she couldn't fight back. Her eyes filled with blood as she looked at me and she died. I knew she was gone when she relieved herself. Now, this circles back to his motive. He wanted to be with Nicole. He had fallen out of love with his wife, if he had ever been in love with her. He had financial pressures, and it was about to get worse because he had another child on the way. But if Chris is now being honest, the straw that broke the camel's back was, in fact, the other woman, Nicole. He wanted to be with Nicole. Now, in previous police interviews, both of them stated that their affair was not the sole reason for him wiping out his entire family, and yet he's now saying it was his main reason. While he's killing his wife and children, he's thinking about Nicole. His goal is to be with her. He really felt like she was his soulmate, and that getting to be with her in the end justified the means. After trying to kill his daughters and failing... Chris loaded his deceased wife's body into the truck with his daughters, drove them to the remote oil site, and then murdered his children. When Chris talks about disposing of his family's bodies on that site, he talks about how he dumped his wife's body on the ground as he went to kill his children. He says he heard a splash when he put little Celeste's body in that oil tank. In his letter, he says, quote, had to put the girls in the tanks so they wouldn't get up a second time. When it came to the task of burying his wife, he says, when I dug the hole, it seemed a lot deeper than it was. As I pulled on the sheet, she rolled out and into the hole. I think she had given birth. She landed face down. I remember being so angry with her that I was not going to change how she landed. For someone who talks about feeling remorse now for what he's done, he sure sounds callous and heartless about literally throwing away the people he was supposed to treasure the most. Now. I also want to point out two things here. You notice when he's talking about when he knew she was dead, he says, and I quote, I knew she was gone when she relieved herself. You know, this is just another attempt to demean her in death. What other possible reason would he have for offering up that detail? And then when he talks about going to 
the grave site. He talks about rolling her into the grave and she winds up face down. So you get this image of her being face down in the dirt. Again, unbecoming, demeaning description. He just can't pass up the chance to be superior. For someone who talks about remorse now for what he's done, he sounds so callous and heartless about literally throwing away the people he was supposed to treasure the most. It's this type of language he uses that supports this idea that he is a sociopath. This is a man who was a wolf in sheep's clothing for more than 30 years of his life until he revealed his true colors when the opportunity presented itself. So how did he really feel after committing these crimes? Remember when he most recently spoke with the FBI, he said he considered killing himself after his family was dead? In fact, that is what many family annihilators do kill their families, then themselves. So many times it's a murder-suicide. Of course, Chris gave the investigators a very flimsy excuse as to why he did not ultimately take his life, saying he had gasoline with him, but didn't want to use it to kill himself somehow up at the oil site in case it endangered anyone else. He said he didn't have any other weapons on him, so, well, he just couldn't kill himself. Yeah, right. Now he admits that that wasn't true. He knew all along he wasn't going to kill himself. He killed them so he could have a blank slate and go build a new life for himself. In fact, he says, All I could feel was now I was free to be with Nikki. Feelings for my love for her was overcoming me. I felt no remorse. So is this finally the true story? Well, you never know with Chris. Even this new confession to this author, he gives conflicting statements and continues to raise even further suspicion. For example, when it comes to the oxycodone, in one letter he claims he gave it to Shannon only once while they were in North Carolina, hoping it would make her miscarry. In another, he says he gave it to her before her death. It's also interesting to note that when it comes to how he got the painkillers, he didn't have a prescription, he says that he's taking that information to the grave. He refuses to reveal who gave it to him. Of course, this has caused wild theories among armchair detectives. Where did he get the drugs? And did the person or persons he allegedly got these pills from know how he was intending to use them? Immediately, there was online speculation that his mistress, Nikki, was the one who supplied him with these pills. This is what people alleged. No proof, just allegations. People speculated why else would he refuse to name his source. As we know, Nikki has vanished. Allegedly, she's moved, changed her name, and adopted an entirely different life. And to this day, Chris still says that he believes she was his soulmate. She was the one he wanted to bear his son. He also seems to at least somewhat blame her for being his motive. He writes that, quote, If I had not met Nikki, I would never have murdered my family. Does that make it her fault? Well, no. But it sure keeps her in the picture. 
While there's evidence that supports that Nicole may have known she was having an affair with a married man, there's no evidence that supports she was involved in the murder of Shannon and the girls in any way whatsoever. It's interesting to note how he seems to view her as this siren that mesmerized him and rendered him powerless to fight his desire because he is now pinning his motive completely on their affair. And it's yet another example of him being self-serving. If not for this woman who seduced him, he seems to say, he would have stayed with his wife. He would have stayed with his family. Well, there are plenty of people who cheat on their spouses or leave them for other people, and they don't kill their family. But again, the devil made me do it. You know, first it was I did it to avenge my children. Then it's the devil made me do it. Now, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have done it. It's never about him. Cheryl Lynn's book came out in October, and it's not clear if she remains in touch with Chris. She claims she pursued this because she wanted to help Shannon's family. They disagree. They are disgusted. If there is one thing about this case we know for sure, it's the sickening details just keep on coming. And I'm sure Chris will continue his attention-seeking behavior from behind bars. So the story will continue. But for those who love this family, they are left with this. A pregnant woman, her unborn child, and her little girls are dead. Shannon's family is left in pain. Chris's family is left in pain. It's a void that cannot be filled. When I sat down and talked with Shannon's parents, Sandy and Frank, they made it known that one of the things they would do moving forward in an effort to heal themselves would be to provide comfort to others in pain. Sandy said, I want to be on a mission to hug every mom that's missed a child. They've requested for charitable donations to be made to organizations such as the Center for Missing and Endangered Children, as well as the Lupus Foundation of America, a cause that is close to their hearts because Shannon suffered from lupus. The Rootsacks filed a wrongful death suit against Chris, which he hasn't contested. But Chris being in prison for life for his crimes does not bring back their daughter or their grandchildren. The Watts family is, of course, also grieving. Chris's mother, Cindy, had this to say in November of 2018 about her son. I wake up every, every morning just crying, you know, thinking this is not going to be what's going to happen every single day. It's just so hard to get through it. I just don't know how to get through it. Of course, Chris still communicates with his parents from prison, talking about his religion, how he misses his wife and children. And this is their son. They have to contend with what he's done, how he killed their grandchildren, along with their firm belief that their son isn't the monster everyone says he is, despite his actions. And you have to understand, while you don't think of his parents as people deserving of compassion, they didn't do anything wrong. When you get to be Chris's age, he makes his own decisions. He owns his own decisions. 
Just imagine sitting home and getting a call that one of your children has done something so horrific. They absolutely have to be devastated. They have to struggle with feelings of self-blame. What did I miss? Why didn't I see this? How did I raise someone capable of doing this? But the reality is, the more psychopathic someone is, the more adept they are at hiding it. And of course, the more he is vilified, the more he is criticized, the more their parental instincts to protect come out. They can love him and not love what he did. But this case's emotional impact goes way beyond the families. Some first responders and detectives who covered the bodies of Shannon and the girls have suffered from PTSD. These are people trained to deal with horrific crimes and the people who commit them. But this is a case that deeply affected them in a way others haven't. There will no doubt be more news to come regarding this case. Will Chris marry again? I can see that happening. Will more details come to light? I have no doubt. Ultimately, this is one of the darkest cases I've ever covered. In my opinion, Chris Watts is a monster, killer, adulterer, a man guilty of the seven deadly sins. This is a story stranger than fiction. But what we can't forget is that at the heart of this case, there was a young, expectant mother and her precious little girls. These were real people who had so much more life to live and dreams to be realized. They are the ones whose voices we need to hear and to remember. They were silenced by Chris, and it is our charge to speak for them. It's our job to remember them. Mark your calendar. Remind yourself. And this Christmas, light a candle for little Nico, Sissy, and Bella. You've been listening to The Devil Beside Me. I'm Dr. Phil.